0: Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We are in the book of Daniel, and so this morning in Daniel chapter three, we're going to get to kind of a famous part of the story. But just to catch up to speed, uh, what you had was a time where the people of God were brought into exile under basically under Babylonian rule, and there was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar that was putting them kind of under his feet. Uh, he was not what we would call a, he was not what we call a good man, uh, but. If you can imagine that God hands his own people over for a time of judgment, that would be a time of correction to get them back to the place that they were supposed to be, this is what is happening. There's an interesting question in Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with kind of an an example. There's a test that was conducted by a university where 10 students were placed in a room, and there were three lines of varying lengths that were drawn on a card. The students were told to raise their hands when the instructor pointed to the longest line. Here was the catch, nine of the 10 students had been instructed beforehand to raise their hands when the instructor pointed to the second longest line, which means that there was one of the 10 students that was the stooge. So if you ever are at a university and they say, hey, come in here, we'd like to have you be a part of a study. They're probably studying you is what's happening. And that's exactly what happened here. One student was the stooge. And the usual reaction was uh, the stooge would, so the long line would appear and the stooge would would like raise, is this the longest line? And the stooge would raise their hand up. And then the stooge would kind of look around and see nobody else's hand was up. And then their hand would be like this, immediately start going down, right? What they found, this happened more than 75% of the time. So even though you had three lines of varying lengths and one was obviously the longest line, they would buckle under the pressure so that they could fit in with the rest of the group. One researcher concluded that many would rather be president than be right. All right, that's a pretty good jab, but you know you gotta make the people happy, right? In this study of the book of Daniel, there's this theme. You can't make a difference unless you're different. You can't make a difference unless you're different. And being different requires courage. Requires courage. So with that, let's take a look at Daniel chapter three and I'll begin reading it. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. All right, stop for just a second. Do you, think, do you think that people, the people of God have like any memory of like a golden image anywhere in their history at this point? I mean, you'd think that it's like, there's this image of gold. Yeah, we've been here before. Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, that's intense, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> if you don't worship what I tell you to worship, I'm just gonna have to kill you. Now, we have to notice a couple of things. Nebuchadnezzar, he's a little bit hard headed. Is that fair? I mean, this guy's hard headed. Do, do you remember in chapter two, he had had a dream, and the dream was really disturbing to him, and it reminds us of something. Even though he was surrounded by his own people, God can still get to you. God can get to you. And with Nebuchadnezzar, all it took was a dream, and it was like, whoosh, you know, and he gets his attention. And so he, he calls out to all these people, I'm gonna find the person that's gonna interpret this dream. And if y'all get it wrong, I'm gonna kill all of you. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Notice what he's doing here in chapter three. If you don't worship who I'm telling you to worship, I'm gonna kill all of you. This guy likes to kill people is all I'm saying. So finally he runs into Daniel um, and Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream that there were going to be these kingdoms. By the way, he's like, you're one of them. Because in this image there was an image, there was a head of gold. And he says, that's you. And God has is the one that's put you in the position that you're in. Don't fool yourself, but there will be an end to this. You will be taken over. There will be a kingdom that comes after you, and one that comes after them, and one that comes after them. The way that the statue basically ends is you have gold and you have silver and what, but there's this foot. And in the foot of the statue, it says there's clay this is where we get our figure of speech, feet of clay. And what the meaning of feet of clay actually is, is there's a weak spot in here. And if it gets hit, the rest of it is gonna go down. And this is basically what was told to Nebuchadnezzar. He lives under the promise, you're going down, man. This isn't gonna last. So what does he do? He decides to respond to the dream when he gets the interpretation of the dream. Listen to his response in chapter two, verse 47. You're, truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Man, it's like Nebuchadnezzar gets it or something. And it reminds me, when here we are reading in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is building a, a golden statue for the people to come and worship. He gets it only to lose it. He gets it only to walk away from it. It, I, I, it blows my mind. There are times where I'm in, in conversations with people that aren't people of faith. And what they'll say is something like this. If God would just do for me a miracle like he did for them, I'm like, well, hold on. The Bible even tells you that when God performs the miracles, most of the people didn't take what the miracle was meant to point them to. Uh, When Jesus ascended, his earthly ministry is done. You think of all the miracles he had performed, all the times that he had taught in front of all of these people and the number of people that were disciples of his at his ascension would fit into a room. We would love to think that if God revealed a mystery to us or performed a miracle to us, our heart would follow. It doesn't work like that. We might be in line for the miracle, but not for what the miracle expects. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's got a 90-foot statue of himself, gold from top to bottom, and requiring everybody to bow down to it. I was so convicted by this passage this week that I had the statue of me in my backyard taken down. I just couldn't. <laughs> not, not, not only did he not learn the lesson from the dream, this guy made it worse. This is the point where my dad used to look at me like, man, you're a knucklehead. He makes it worse. The fact that it's gold from top to bottom means that he thinks that his kingdom is gonna last forever. He's pushing back. He's not accepting it. And it's the most important thing on earth for Nebuchadnezzar. So for him, this is like round two between him and God. He lost round one. He's like, yeah, but I'm getting back in the ring. You kind of need to know who you're getting in the ring with, friends. He hasn't learned it yet. And please note, if you noticed in verse four, there was this phrase, all the peoples, all the nations, and all the languages. Did you catch that? He expected everybody to come in and to worship him. That's a really important phrase because the other time that we saw this phrase that was mentioned before goes back to Genesis chapter 11 when all the people and nations, and they gathered together and what did they do? They built a tower. They built the Tower of Babel. And you go, where was that? And the answer is it was in the land of Shinar. Where is the land of Shinar? And the answer is, is right here where we're talking about. You go into modern day Iraq, you jump into Baghdad, you drop about 59 miles south, and you are running into Babylon. You're there, it's in this location. And Nebuchadnezzar, apparently forgetting the lesson of the past, says, let's repeat it. And I'm gonna get everybody together and you're gonna worship me. Well, here's the thing. If you look in scripture, the fulfillment of getting everybody together to worship actually will happen. It's just not here. You find it in the book of Revelation when John looks and he says, I see a throng of people that nobody can number. And I quote him from every tribe and tongue and people on earth. And they gathered around the throne of God and they proclaimed, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It will happen. It just wasn't happening here. It wasn't happening here. So you have Daniel, he's a count, uh, you have Nebuchadnezzar, he's a usurper, he's a counterfeiter, he's a fake, but he wants to be recognized as a God, united around his greatness, not the greatness of God. So what happens? I know you're wondering what their answer was to this. Worship me or die. Daniel chapter three, verse seven. How'd the people respond? Here's the answer. When all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, and all the things, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language, Fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Oof, man. This was their, is this the longest line moment? Now look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. It says, There are some Jews that you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue of you that you've set up. Nebuchadnezzar is not happy. Did you notice this though? Daniel's not mentioned. Daniel's usually the guy that's walking around with the guys. Where's he at? Probably, and we get this from Daniel 2.49, it says that Daniel was put on the king's court. Here's what this could possibly mean. What this could mean is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're kind of out there with the people. And it's like, all right, it's time to bow down and worship. And everybody goes, foom, down to the ground. And you got three guys standing out there like this. Not gonna happen. Daniel is very likely up on the stage with Nebuchadnezzar while all this is going down. What do you think he's doing? I'm gonna guess. He's standing up. I'm just gonna take a guess. This was, this was their which is the longest line moment. And they're pointing to the second longest line and going, uh-uh, and they're like, no, it's the other one. They weren't gonna give in to the pressure. They weren't gonna give in to, they weren't gonna give in to the crowd. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't happy. In Daniel 3, 13 and 14, Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? I'll tell you what. Now he's gonna give this appearance of, I'm really not that bad of a guy. I'm threatening to kill everybody, but still. But still. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, I'll give you another chance. This time, when you hear the sound of every kind of music, you fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And here's the line, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my power? Who is he? Now, here's a quick answer. The one that interpreted your dream. There's the quick answer, and they did answer him. Look at Daniel chapter three, verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They're not done, look at verse 18. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. Two possibilities here. We believe that God is able, he might not. He might not deliver us from the fiery furnace, but he will deliver us. We believe that he is able. If he wants us to be delivered from the furnace, we will be delivered from the furnace. If he doesn't, we'll be delivered through death, but he will deliver us. That's what they're saying. Now, how do you think Nebuchadnezzar would react to that? He was like, you know what, guys? I just love your conviction. I mean, it's not the way it works. Look at verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Parents, have you ever had a moment with your kids where they made you so mad that your face changed? That was Nebuchadnezzar here, and he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. If you keep reading the narrative, here's what it says. He heated this thing so hot that it kills the soldiers that are taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the furnace. It's really hot. Uh, This furnace could have been the one that they used to actually forge the image that he brought out, that he had stood up, that he expected everybody to worship. And if you look at the size of that that stat, we're talking 90-footer kind of thing, that is a big furnace. This would make the orcs in Helm's Deep like really, really jealous. They'd be impressive. And here's the thing, it's fire time. You got a second chance, you don't get a third. And so they're marching them up to the fire. The soldiers are dropping dead because the heat is so tent- intense, but the guys seem to be doing okay. According to most, what it seems is, is that they like dropped them into the furnace and there they were. And what happened? Well, look at Daniel 3, 24 and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm, like he's looking in to watch them melt almost like Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened the ark at the end of it. You know what I'm talking about? Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in alarm and he says to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. And he said, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed and cooking steaks. I'm kidding, that's not in there. But here's the other part. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, who's that? We're actually not sure. If you keep reading in verse 28 of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like there's an angel in there with them. That's certainly a possibility. Angels have been known to appear and to deliver. That's a possibility. The other main possibility is that this is what is called a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to deliver his people from the fire. He shows up before he shows up. Maybe it's that. But here's the thing. They said, we know that God will deliver us. He is able. And he did. They come walking out. And it basically got Nebuchadnezzar's attention because they're like, listen, people. um, We're not totally sure who it is that they're worshiping here, but whoever they is, you need to worship this person. You might feel that way too. I give you this story basically to make a couple of points. There are two main themes here, and here's one. One is about courage. It is about courage. And and to that point, I wanna share a story. How many of you remember Paul Harvey? The rest of the story. I wanna read one to you. One summer morning, as Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast, he gazed out the window, and he saw a small girl being swept along in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Blankenship knew that farther downstream, The ditch disappeared with a roar underneath a road and then emptied into the main culvert. Ray dashed out of the door and raced along the ditch trying to get ahead of the foundering child. Then he hurled himself into the deep churning water. Blankenship surfaced and was able to grab the child's arm. They tumbled end over end. Within about three feet of the yawning culvert, Ray's free hand felt something, possibly a rock, protruding from one of the banks. He clung desperately, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away. If I can just hang on until help comes, he thought. But he did better than that. By the time the fire department rescuers arrived, Blankenship had pulled the girl to safety. Both were treated for shock. On April 12th, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guards Silver Life-Saving Medal. And the award is fitting for this selfless person was at even greater risk to himself than most people ever knew because Ray Blankenship couldn't swim. That's courage. You will be facing times where everyone is pointing at the second line that isn't the longest and expecting you to pony up. You need courage. You need courage. But I think there's a second theme here that's really important for us to unpack and it's that there's a problem with idolatry. There's a problem of idolatry. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. What did this guy want? He wanted and expected people to worship him. This is what idolatry can do. Idolatry can lead us to a place where we put expectations on people that we never should put on people. Tim Keller gives us some insights on this in a book. It's a great book called Counterfeit Gods. I would recommend it. But you have to identify what your idols are. I'm guessing this morning, none of you have a 90-foot statue in your yard I'm gonna guess that, but here's the thing, you do have idols, you do. There is something or some things in your life that you are worshiping. They are your ultimate concern. They, they are what occupy the majority of your time. It is what you have attached yourself to the most emotionally and without it, you wouldn't know who you are. Tim Keller says, that's right, and if you identify what it is, you can know how to get it out. So I've given you this chart here And I want to take a look at it. Some of you worship comfort. Some of you worship your own comfort. So why does it go, why it goes unrecognized and how does it look to everybody else around you? Comfort makes you look laid back. It makes you look easygoing. And for those people that are always worked up, they wish that they could be more like you. The problem is, is that with the worship of comfort, there's a price that you pay which means you're gonna pay, you're gonna have a lack of productivity. There's just not anything that's coming out of you that's any good. And your worst nightmare when you worship comfort is you're gonna constantly fear stress and demands. Any demand comes on you and you start to panic. Why? Because it's disrupting the comfort that you worship for yourself. Others, uh, or the biggest emotional problem that you're gonna face is boredom. Because when you worship comfort and you're doing nothing, you're constantly bored. But you're built into this cycle. Others, when they're around you, they constantly feel hurt and they feel neglected because you don't put any investment. You don't put energy. You don't put time. You're not known as a person who sacrifices because you worship things for yourself. The gospel reality that this counterfeits is peace in Christ. You don't have it, but you'll create a substitute for it. How about approval? Approval. You know anybody that worships approval? Don't point. Why does this often go unrecognized? Like, What does this look like to people that are around you? And the answer is you typically look very likable. You look very friendly. And the reason is, is because you become the social chameleon. You will change from group to group to group to group, even willing to adapt your values so that you fit in with them because the highest priority to your life is being approved by people. Now, the cost that comes with this to yourself is you're going to have less independence. And what I mean by that is this you are constantly being held down and dependent on other people for approval, which means you don't know who you are because you don't know who you're with. And if you don't know who you're with and you're constantly having to change who you are, you're completely dependent on what they think for you to be satisfied with yourself. Your worst nightmare when you worship approval is being rejected. And so you'll do anything so that you don't get rejected, including compromising your deepest values. The biggest emotional problem with with worshiping approval is cowardice. Uh, Could you imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had they worshiped approval, my guess is, is they wouldn't have had to heat it up the furnace. What do you think? They'd have been like, that's fine, we just want you happy. Others that are around you, when you worship approval, they feel smothered by you. And the reason is kind of obvious, is because you're constantly expecting out of them to give you what only God can give you. They're the ones that have to build you up. You're the ones that have to heal me, when really the healing comes from Jesus, and people sp- feel smothered. And in reality, what this is, is it's a counterfeit for God's love that you need to experience and feel very deeply. How about, work, how about control freaks? Know anybody like that? All right, everybody point at somebody real quick. No, I'm just... What does this often look like? Usually you look competent and here's why. If you want the job done, I guess I'm gonna have to do it. Myself, you're actually not going to give anybody that you hire, you're not gonna give them the time to like learn their job because you're not getting it right. It's like they should have just known when they walked into the place. And so you step in and you take control and it's like, man, what can't this guy do? You look really competent. But what you are is you're a person that wants control over everything. What's the price that you pay for being a control freak and the answer, and worshiping control? And the answer is, you will eventually end up lonely because you've burned down all the relationships around you. Because people, when you think about it, uh, your worst nightmare is uncertainty. Your biggest emotional problem is anxiety. Everything around you that you don't have control of just like works you up and you don't know how to get over it. And others around you feel condemned and judged and offended because they never measure up to an expectation that you set and demanded them to meet. And I'm not saying that you don't have expectations out of people, of course you do, that's fine. I'm talking about something different here. And the gospel reality that this counterfeits is God's blessings in your life, because you've pushed God out. How about power? Notice anybody that worships power? I would probably throw Nebuchadnezzar in that category, is that fair? I mean, talk about a power grabber. This guy's like first rate. I've always wondered what would have happened to this guy if he had just had a good counselor, you know? You've got a problem. You need help. What does this often look like? And the answer is you look confident, but the price that you'll pay is you're constantly gonna feel burdened, and you're always going to feel the responsibility of being in charge. Your worst nightmare is humiliation. When other people see you as not perfect, totally in control, the one in charge. When that image of you falls... Well, what's left of you? Your biggest emotional uh, reaction to this is you're a person that's angry. Did you notice with Nebuchadnezzar when the people refused to see him the way that that he demanded them to, how did he react? With anger. Anger. Others feel used and manipulated, and here's why. Because they're just a means to your end. You're the one in control. It's all about you. And gospel reality that it counterfeits is genuine holiness and righteousness. John Calvin said that we are in our heart is an idol factory. We crank these things out. It's not a matter of do you worship things? You do. It's a matter of what do you worship. So I'm going to put it in a different way. I'm going to put it in the form of questions. And I'm going to have you answer it for yourself this morning. Not out loud. I'm going to have you answer it for yourself this morning. Do you have power idolatry? If so, it would look like this. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over other people. How about approval idolatry? My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I am loved and respected by, and you fill in the blank. Your husband, your wife, your children, your colleagues. Comfort idolatry. My life only has meaning, and I only have worth. If I have this kind of pleasure and experience in my life, I have to have this particular quality of life, and if I don't, there's nothing left to my life. How about image idolatry? My life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I have a particular kind of look or body image. And if I don't, then, well, I mean, what else is there to me? Maybe you're worshiping your image. Control idolatry. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of, you fill in the blank, helping idolatry. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if people are dependent on me and they need me. I mean, and if they don't, then like what's left of me? How about independence idolatry? My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of anyone. Maybe you worship your independence. How about work idolatry? My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. And if I'm not, what's left of me? Achievement idolatry. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and if I'm excelling in my career. Materialism idolatry. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice things. And without that, there's really not much left to me. Or how about even family idolatry? Family is a good thing, but your family is never meant to be worshiped. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if my children or my parents are happy and happy with me. I love what Richard Keyes says. He wrote a book called The Idol Factory and he said this. He said, The idol begins as a means of power, enabling us to control, but then it overpowers and controls us. What's your idol? I want to give you another illustration. There's a prolific writer named David Foster Wallace. Uh, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. He was invited to give a commencement address at a university. And here's what he said. This was back at Kenyon College in 2005. And here's what he said as an atheist. He said, everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. I think the atheist was right, don't you? Paul gives us another way. In Colossians 3, one through five, here's what he says. He says, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, and yes, some of you worship sex. Impurity, lust, which is just an inordinate desire for something. Evil desires, greed, and here's what he says, which is idolatry. It's idolatry. He says, put your idols to death. He didn't say put it down. He said, kill it. No life left in it. Kill it. I I want you to see something side by side. In Romans chapter one, verses 21 and 22, And then in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, let me read those to you. We'll set these side by side so that you can hear a difference. Listen to Romans 1, 21 and 22. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. I'll trade God for this stuff. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and his perfect will. You'll test it and you'll know it. Do you see some things in contrast? In Romans 1, the people there did not glorify God and they didn't thank him for anything. But in Romans 12, you have thankful sacrifice and worship. In Romans 1, their idolatry leads them to literally dishonoring their body, even sexually. But in Romans 12, our spiritual renewal leads leads to offering and the consecration of your body in worship to Jesus. In Romans 1, you have foolish idolatry, and he says, this is futile. You chase it like crazy, but it's empty. In Romans 12, you have real and deep and meaningful and transformational worship. In Romans 1, they exchanged God's glory for an image. But in Romans 12, we are transformed into his image. In Romans 1, their minds are debased. In Romans 12, your mind is renewed. This is what God can do through Christ and his Holy Spirit in you. This is it. But the idols have to die. They have to die. It's not a matter of do you have it, you've got it. And probably like Nebuchadnezzar, you invite other people in, and in fact, expect them to pony up to your idol. They do well to tell you no. Because what you're asking them to do is for you to fill in for them what only Jesus can give. It's what you're asking. This is a good no. I'm a C.S. Lewis fan. I know you're shocked to hear me say that at this point together, but there's a book that he wrote called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a story about a boy named Eustace in there. He became a dragon in it. And the reason was is because he had always fixed his thoughts on being a dragon. He had worshipped the idea of being a dragon. And so, well, he became a dragon. And he lives this way for six days, and he's absolutely miserable once he became a dragon. But the whole experience is really humbling for him. After six days living as a dragon, he finally encounters Aslan. And Aslan, for those of you who have read the books, he's the Jesus figure. And Aslan takes Eustace the dragon up onto this mountain and to this perfectly clear pool that was in front of him. And he tells Eustace, he says, you need to get into the pool and you need to wash yourself. He says, but before doing so, you need to get undressed. And what he means by this is is the dragon part of you has got to come off. It's got to go. And and I love what C.S. Lewis says, and I just want to read it to you this morning. He says of Eustace, he said, so I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and I saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before, And the lion said, this is Aslan, the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. He said, I was afraid of his his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it was worse than anything that I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts, but it's so much fun to see it coming away. And his friend Edmund, who's there, he says, I know exactly what you mean. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought, I'd done it myself the other three times, only it hadn't hurt. And and there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water." It it smarted like anything but for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And this is what he said, I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. I had turned into a boy again. It's time for the idols to die. Because what you are worshiping is literally killing you. And Jesus wants to make you a boy again. He wants to make you what you were meant to be. And what that means is you have to come to him, like Eustace to Aslan, and he'd say, I will take the pain of killing the idols so that I can be what only you can make me. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.